it is uh, right and true to say that if you're fortunate and blessed to study with uh, people who are gifted and scholarly and experienced, perhaps the best things you learn from being close to them is not necessarily or only the things that they tell you, but also how they live their life. Um, I've, uh, over the course of uh, my academic uh, time, I was blessed to study with a number of remarkable people, uh, one of which you've heard me mention a number of times, although the name may escape you in a moment. Uh, one of Israel's uh, great theologians, political commentators, his name was Yeshayahu or Isaiah Leibovitch. He, was, um, he had a PhD in mathematics and also in chemical biology and psychology at the Hebrew University. And on the side, he dabbled as a philosopher and a theologian. But his sister, Nechama, was no less a light than him. On Friday mornings at, um, at Bar-Ilan University, where I studied, not only was it a university that had a standard uh, secular program, but they also had a Talmudic academy that I studied in. And on Friday mornings, they didn't have regular classes because it was before Shabbat. And then in the morning, on alternating weeks, Yeshayahu, the brother, would come. And the one thing that I learned was he had the worst fitting dentures I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it was, it was my first year in the school. My Hebrew really wasn't that good. And I sat very, very close to him in order to be able to hear what he said which of course had a profound consequence that I was, sh I was showered with his spittle all the time. In fact, one time they actually fell out, but that's a whole other story. His sister didn't have the dental problems he had. And anyways, uh, I was blessed in hearing them in alternating weeks. And so there's an idea from this morning I want to share with you that it comes by her. Now, she subsequently became a star in her own right because the weekly Torah portion studies that she did ended up being translated into English uh, through the efforts, I think, of the Hadassah Witso organization. And it's called uh, Weekly Torah Studies. And it was a de rigueur kind of study book that everyone dealt with because the way she deconstructed the weekly Torah portions just revealed the, the brilliance that she had. Anyways, Nechama Leibovitch points out in this morning's Torah portion something very unique that occurs. Now, this morning's Torah portion is from the book of Exodus, and it is the beginning of the book of Exodus. It is the beginning of the beginning when you think about the story of the Jewish people. Because if the, if the book of Genesis really is the beginning of, of all things, the book of Exodus is the beginning of our thing. And there are three stories that are revealed to us about the person who by large is responsible for making our thing a thing. And who is that? It's Moses. We hear the origin story of Moses, how he is literally saved from the from this the edge of the spear at the last moment, how he is saved by placing him down the Nile River, how he is plucked out of the water and given his name by the daughter of Pharaoh, how he is raised in the house of Pharaoh. And these things move very, very quickly 
until Nechama Leibovitch, the woman, points out to us that there are three distinct stories that are told to us about Moses. And these stories occur in a very particular moment in order. And they all occur when he begins to mature. Accordingly, in rabbinic tradition, we are told that these stories, the first one begins either at the age of 20 for Moses or at the age of 40. But in any respect, it marks the beginning of the person that we begin to know. And what are those three stories? We read them this morning. The first story is famously encaptured in Cecil B. DeMille's movie. I'm sure you've seen it. The Ten Commandments. Moses goes out into the slave pits and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster abusing a Hebrew slave. And what does Moses do? It says, it says, he looks left and right. And he saw that there was no, nobody else around and he strikes the Egyptian taskmaster down, killing him. He buries him in the sand. To hide it so that people don't undertake an investigation about how this man died. Then we hear another story. Moses again goes back into the slave pits and what does he see? Two Hebrews, two, two Jews fighting with each other. And what does he do? He sees one beating on the other and he intervenes and he strikes he strikes the assaulting Jew who is hitting the weaker Jew. Now this all begins to remind us of the third story where Moses on escaping Egypt, he comes to the land of Midian and he sees that there is a group of daughters who are shepherds, young women, who are being assaulted by male shepherds. They weren't permitting these women shepherds, to water their flock. And what does Moses do? He steps in. He steps in. And he repels the male shepherds. He then lifts the rock off of the water, off of the water hole to allow the women to come and water their own flocks. It is providential for him because these women are attached to the king or the leader of the tribe of Midian. His name is Yitro, Jethro, the eldest daughter. Zipporah is given to him as a wife. He has children. It's all a providential and beautiful story. What's the connection of all of these three stories? Now you're beginning to sense it the way I'm presenting it to you. But I'm going to refine it in even a clearer way, not with my words, but one of the most important Zionist thinkers from the late 1800s, he's known by his pen name, Echad Am. Next time you go to Tel Aviv, by the way, and it should be soon, there's a small cemetery not far from the beach on Trumpeldor Street, and the cemetery is called the Trumpeldor Cemetery, so you won't have trouble finding it. The mayor of Tel Aviv is buried there, Mayor Dizengoff. Uh, um, Bialik is buried there, and amongst others, Echad Am, whose real name was Asher Ginsburg. Ginsburg 
tells the following interpretation of these three stories, and I want to share it with you. He writes as follows. When Moses goes out from his, from his home, which is Pharaoh's palace, out into the marketplace of life, he immediately encounters the cruelty of the world. And without much thought or consideration, he immediately inserts himself to address this cruelty. And what does he find? He finds an Egyptian striking an Israelite. And what does he do? He doesn't pause for a moment. And he steps on the side of the weak against the side of the strong. And then he goes on further. And then he sees that there are two Jews fighting with each other. Two of them brothers, one weak and one strong. And he stands in front of the weak and repels the strong. And once again, the urge and the impulse to do the just and the right in his heart, stands up. And more so, we find that in the third story, that when Moses intervenes, clearly he's not very smart. He's not very smart at looking after or attending to his own needs. Because at each time in Egypt, when he intercedes on behalf of the weak, of the abused, of the unjust, that he places himself into danger. And he must leave his home and there's a bounty and a price put on his head. And he must run for his life. And then in the midst of him running for his life, Achadaam Asher Ginsburg points out that what does he do? He sees that there's another problem, that these adult male shepherds are abusing these women. And it's like he didn't learn his lesson. The first two times he intervenes, he has to pick up and leave Egypt. He has to wander through the desert, losing everything he had. His money, his wealth, his position in life. He was a prince of Egypt. And then he approaches the scene in Midian, where he sees these male shepherds abusing and attacking these female shepherds, and he didn't learn a thing. Because what does he do? He steps in again. These three stories, Nechama Leibovitch points out, has an interesting element to it. And there are three lessons. The first story is where there's a Jew and a non-Jew. The non-Jew is abusing the Jew and Moses steps in to protect the Jew. The second story is where a Jew is attacking a Jew and Moses steps in to protect the weaker Jew. And the third story is where there are two non-Jews and Moses steps in to protect the weaker non-Jew. I thought of this and I have been thinking of this because of what's taking place in Israel and throughout the world. Most people think in absolutes, but we're commanded not to. People think that when you look at the horrible scenes that are taking place in Gaza and elsewhere, that, oh, the Israelis are right, and who cares what happens to them? Or, it's terrible what's happening to the Palestinians in Gaza and the Israelis are wrong. But that's not the way the world is and that is not the way that we are commanded to see the world. That we can hold two thoughts in our minds and hearts at the same time. 
that we can be deeply, deeply supportive and convinced of the righteousness of what Israel is doing because there is no choice to it. When you have people who want to murder and destroy you living on your border, but hundreds of feet away from where your women and men and children live, there is no choice but to destroy that. And at the same time, you can look at the images of people who are thirsty and are starving and are injured, the innocent amongst them, and your heart can break. We know that that is the way that the world is. It is seldom filled with absolute maximalist axioms. Seldom is it is, this is right and that's wrong. You can hold both in your heart. And when you listen and hear protests, particularly on the other side, it's always black and white. And that's how you know they're wrong. If you watch the news and you see the terrible images and your heart breaks, and then you begin to seep it and say to yourself, maybe it should stop. Maybe it's enough. You have to remind yourself that it is enough, but it can't stop. It can't stop until that the people who live in those border towns, either down south or up north, and it's over 150,000 people, there are families with children with special needs who are living in single hotel rooms because they can't go back to their homes. Could you imagine that? Families with three, four, five, six children living in a single hotel room far away from their homes. And if you have a child with a special need, they can't access their doctors and their therapy and their supports until those people can go back to their homes and live safely. There really is no state of Israel. And the Zionist dream is broken if the Jews cannot live safely within the borders of their home. And yet at the same time, when you hear the death of a Palestinian child, when you hear that there are people who are starving and are thirsty and are sick because they can't get medicine, because the humanitarian aid that is going in is being taken and stolen your heart must break. It is a tragedy on both sides. And if on one side they will not address it and fix it, then it is our obligation to address it and fix it. The story of Moses that we hear this morning of concern, not necessarily caring for the players in the story, Jew or Egyptian, Midianites against Midianite, Jew against Jew. That's not the story here. The story is, is that you should care on both sides. Wherever there is injustice taking place in the world, wherever there is hurt or harm or pain, your heart should feel it and you should defend it even as you must do what you need to do in order to live. Shabbat Shalom.